Follow us at the real, 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 real dot com. Keep it real. We got all y'all coats, all y'all pee coats. We got Tory Birch. <laughs> we got Birkins. You feel what I'm saying? We got everything. Real, real, a real, 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 real. At the real, real dot com. <laughs> we are not sponsored by the real, real. That was just a little jokey joke. Wouldn't that be Eating nice? Hard, hard. No, 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 actually. <laughs> I think I don't know if I ever told you this story. I went to a group interview at Ricky's one time. <laughs> I think I, I was homeless in New York at this point. That's oh, another podcast. Jesus. We really about, need to do that podcast. We here. need to do that podcast. No, we're not doing it today. It's called the Emotionally uh, Abusive uh, Podcast. Uh, 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 be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a podcast, but close the lips. Uh, but anyway, you know, brother was on the street or whatever the case may be. Um, and I decided to go try to find a job. <laughs> And uh, I went to Ricky's and I applied and I actually got to the group interview. Oh, wow. And they said, uh, say one word to describe yourself. And I think I said, what the hell did I say? I think it was unassuming. (laughs) And I think they might have like interpreted that to mean that I steal or something. So I didn't get it. (laughs) How so? I think I said unassuming. I just said one word. It said one word to describe yourself. Not unassuming. It might have been mysterious. like, I don't know if it was mysterious, <laughs> but like, it was something that's like, okay, this motherfucker probably be in here selling. Sneaky. Which I was. Was the word sneaky? No. What if somebody said Clandestine, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> something silly. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Hood Rap to Head Rap. Coming to you live and direct from the house. You know what I'm talking about? I'm so sorry, everybody, you know, for how little we get on here and do this. I'm actually not sorry because I'm healing my ancestral trauma. Okay. And I'm trying to take better care of myself. And it's a good day. It's a good time. It's no better time than to be black right now and healing your ancestral trauma. So I'm really trying to do that for myself and center myself in some way, somehow, some shape or form. Uh, however, we will be bringing y'all the goods as we are able and as we are capable. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm probably going to take all that out. But anyway, <laughs> welcome to another episode of Hood Rat to, to Head Rat. Hood Rat to Head Rat. Hood Rat. All right. <laughs> Say it again. Nah, I think we, um, I think they got it. It's good to not apologize for it, it, not doing something. I mean, yeah. as long as you haven't, you know, given some sort of commitment to someone. I mean, like if you, for example, people say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. It's taking me so long to get back to this text message or, or to this email. email. Our podcast, we love y'all. But what we are learning in couples therapy is that we need to be more flexible. Yes. Okay, so we are being flexible with our podcast. We're being flexible. If you can hear in my voice, that's very challenging for me. Flexible. We are introing the most... I just have to preamble this for a second because we've already been a part of it. Obviously, it is 
recorded. You get you can know that little intel. We break the, what do you say, the fourth wall, the sixth wall? The We're wall. breaking the fifth wall and telling you that this episode has been pre-recorded. We've already been a part of it. And it is probably one of our top three episodes we have ever recorded. Literally. It is so phenomenal. And I know that people listen to this podcast while they're driving oftentimes. I actually recommend that you listen to this podcast when you can take notes safely. Mm. So if you, if somebody else can drive while you listen. Or if somebody <laughs> else can take notes for you if you're yes. able. Uh, it is so, I mean, literally while we were recording, I was taking notes. It is so rich. It is a meditation. It is. Yes. Alain Pelez. They them pronouns migrant scribble on Instagram. That's also their Venmo. So you don't even have to listen to the whole podcast because they say that information at the end. You should just know that now. That's their Venmo, they PayPal and their cash app at migrant M I G R A N T scribble S C R I B B L E. That's not their PayPal, just their cash app and their memo. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I don't think they have PayPal. Yes. Whatever the case may be, whatever they got, NFT, TVC, <laughs> Bitcoin, whatever it is, <laughs> you got a piece of paper rolled up with oregano in it, and that's what you have to offer. You need to do so for you, this episode. I mean, even just giving, you know, Alan a follow on the interwebs makes a difference. Booking Alan. Like, booking Alan to speak at your institution of some sort maybe at your even at your family event it is just at your institution hiring a line to be a professor at your institution it's a real good look you understand it is so rich just really really rich so the impetus for this episode is a question that really was inspired by l moxley one of our really good friends where you know a lot of people will say things like black and brown Right. And one day, I think it was like three years ago, because Gemini's are always ahead of all the things. Anything that's trending, a Gemini's ahead of and already asked a question about in my in opinion. <laughs> and Elle was like, what is brown? What does that mean? And I just love that question because brown isn't something that is asked for on a census. It's not something that's asked for in any sort of like medical documentation, college application. It, it's, it is obviously an identifier for people, yes. but where does it come from? Yes. And I, I, I name those, you know, uh, applications or forms that you have to fill out mm-hmm. because that uh, our institutions are oftentimes what validates and cements race, right? Yes. And I just think it's interesting, you know, like who is Brown? What is Brown? And then we also get conversations around acronyms like POC, BIPOC, B-I-P-O-C, and M-B-P-O-C, non-black POC. And do you, so, and by BIPOC, for anybody who doesn't know, that's black, indigenous, and people of color. Yes. And then uh, there's the other one, of course, is the most ubiquitous of them all. It's people of color, persons of color. Yes. Uh, And I think that those are acronyms for brown. Yes. And, uh, well, what they really are, to me, at least in my understanding, is modifiers for black. Yes. It's a way to not say black. Yes. Uh, but it's also a way to there there is a the person of color comes from black 
Let's just be honest. I mean, I think one of the earliest um, written usages of the word person of color came from with a little research. I think we talked about this on another podcast. We talked about this a long time ago. But I brought up, you know, the act to prohibit the importation of slaves into any port or place within the jurisdiction of the United States. And it was signed in 1807 which apply to any Negro, mulatto, or person of color. And so I'll have the link to this article in NPR that talks about that, um, about the use of person of color. Of course, it's talking about chattel slavery in the United States. That's United States terms and United States legislation. Now, the interesting thing about this is that I think when people say person of color today, they say so almost as a way to lump each marginalized communities or racialized, a person with a racialized identity, mm-hmm. um, to lump us into a category that is easily understood by white people. Yeah, but we've already talked about we have POC. Talked what about is the that. name of the episode? I'm going to find the name of it. Eclipsing Whiteness? No, but I'm going to find the name of it. But we have that. But this is exploring how... The nuts and bolts of it all. The nuts and bolts of it all. Because it's like, they say, you know, people say, okay, we're all PLC. That must mean we have some type of homogenous or shared contextual experience as quote-unquote people of color. But we all know that that's not the case. Yeah. We all know that PLC is supposed to be, you know, Oh, everybody want to be black till till it's time to be white? I talked more about AVE on that episode. Yeah. Y'all need to check that thing on out too if you already haven't. Um, however, it's almost like if we say PLC, that, that should pretend that we're all unified in some sense. But having a term PLC is not going to make us any more unified. Well, it makes than, the assumption that we're unified. Right. And that we're, because we're not quote unquote white, and I say quote unquote white mm-hmm. because there are people. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, how are you a person of color if you are white? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like under, you know, uh, white supremacist terms, race is in how race works because race was created by white supremacy. It is based on phenotype. Yeah. That is not something that w- none of us created, but white supremacists. Yep. They said, you are black if you have dark skin. Yeah. The end. You know that's what I mean? Like, if that's it, you know? Mm-hmm. And then also wide nose, big lips, mm-hmm. um, wide hips. All of these things are described mm-hmm. in very early text of creating race. Yes. So where exactly does the brown come in? Like, this is this is my thing I want people to take from before you jump into this podcast episode. Interrogate everything. Mm-hmm. There's way too much agreement with terms that get popular, mm-hmm. with terms that leave the mouths of politicians, mm-hmm. presidents, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, white uh, people uh, creating legislation in 1807, uh, DEI, DEI statements, right? Like yeah. it's way too much agreement, and you have to get interested in where this is from. My assertion, and we will get into it via in detail in this episode, mm-hmm. is that PLC Brown, non black PLC. Uh, even BIPOC 
is an always is BIPOC with the exception of BIPOC because black is in BIPOC, mm-hmm. but it's still all of these hopes to move away from blackness entirely. It's to say, put your line in the sand and say, oh, I'm not black. Or black and indigenous, not that they are black indigenous people, not that black is has an indigeneity to it particularly everywhere but that's the thing of bipoc they want mm-hmm. to separate blackness from in, indigeneity yeah it's indigenous looks away and blackness looks away yes. so that's why we need to and poc looks away yes this is right a, it, it's yeah. all distinct but here we are lumped together yes by what and what, what yeah. that doesn't for what yeah. for why are we why are we lumped together and it also, <laughs> it's also talks about it also you know gets into our relationships our inter, I guess, intercommunal relationships between yes. quote unquote people of color, um, BIPOC, like yes. what, what the inter, what those interactions historically have looked like, to the point where different indigenous tribes and groups are having conflicts with black members of those tribes. Yes, you know because they're trying to get their you know tribal documents and representation mm-hmm. and. People are saying you're not indigenous. You're yeah. not. A, you're not Cherokee. You're not Seminole because you are dark skinned Yep. Just complete erasure. Yeah. Just complete erasure. And also the erasure of historical, mm-hmm. you know, context that also indigenous people owned indigenous Africans. Yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. there's that. This like complete moving away from again some indigenous Americans, because not all of them are, are light skin, right? That assumption, uh, that they are lighter skin, lighter than what would be erased as black Mm -hmm. means that they were, you know, able to have a position of power to own slaves. You are passing as white, right? There is some assimilation into whiteness, Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that, again, we move away from that with not talking about the fact that skin has a high currency, as Alon says in this episode, yeah. right? It has always had a high currency, and we can't pretend like the acronyms of M, non-black POC, POC, BIPOC move away from that, or there's yeah. no more a currency. It's just all of us lumped together, and then we have the D word. Diverse. Yeah. Or multicultural, which is yep. what they're also calling us. And I think it's also POC has emerged as a way to have ownership over blackness mm-hmm. without having to be black. Okay. Without having ownership over the amenities of blackness. To say that POC created rock and roll when it was really black people that created rock and roll. Yeah. It's to say that, oh, you know, this word is just a slang term, you know, popular on the internet rather than that black people created that term and created all the language that is mostly popular on the internet today. Yep. Um, it, it's just really a way to have ownership, but also to have distance from blackness, mm-hmm. um, to use blackness whenever it is convenient. Um, it's a way to not talk about black people during this month, uh, Native American History Month or Indigenous um, History Month. Yep. It's a way to not talk month, about... Or last month. Or Latinx month, for, right? Was yeah. it last month? Uh, or Latino Heritage yeah. Month was... September, right? September. Mm-hmm. September. Yeah, September to October. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's a way to not think about the cross-cultural exchange um, that has happened um, whenever black people across the diaspora have been, you know, in contact with other groups. Uh, it's, it's, it's something that we have to think about. Yeah. It's just something that we always have to think about. 
So I'm really pleased and happy to have y'all just get into this episode. It's going to be, it, it's just going to blow your mind. We're just going to stop talking and just play it. Yeah, I like that. That's We broke the fifth law. That's, we did. I didn't have to integrate. It's so, you don't have to. There you go. It's so, it's so good. Like, I'm not just saying that because Alon is my whole friend, but this, it, Alon's mind is just so beautiful and this is, is generous. Yes. Yeah, just and it's enjoy. for you. Yes, it's for you to. And I know people get all their panties in a bunch of. Oh, you're being, you know, being divisive, and we need to stick together. It's like, how are we gonna stick together? How are we gonna do that if we just calling ourselves BIPOC and PLC? But that's the sticking together. That's what people it's think. Just saying stuff. But it's it's uh-huh. more anti blackness. It's not yeah. sticking together. It's more erasure. Yeah. It's the it's that utopia that people talked about when we were kids and said like in 2020, you know, I think it was on national the cover of National Geographic. In 2020, people will look like this, and it was a light skinned person with green eyes Literally. and two C hair. That yeah. is the hope. And make calling things PLC instead of saying black is moving in that direction. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we're seeing that across the board, across, you know, the diaspora, but yeah. also across other racial identities. And that's yeah. what Alon is going to get into. And we are going to move into the episode now and yeah. stop talking. And I have one last question oh I want to leave y'all with. I'm leaving y'all with a question <laughs> I want y'all to hold on to mm-hmm. as you listen to this episode is what in your communities, your culture, if you are a non-black person listening to this, do you see historically and even in the present a displacement or removal of any person close to black mm-hmm. or anything that represents blackness in your culture? Where do you see a concerted effort um, to erase blackness and why is that historically in your culture? I really want people to think about that. Yes. Yes. It's a, that's an important thing to think about at all times, regardless of your background. Here we are. Here we are. Let's get into it. Enjoy. Peace. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Alan. I am a, a cultural critic and an interdisciplinary artist originally from Oaxaca, Mexico. I came to the U.S. when I was pretty young, and I lived for most of my life in the U.S. as an undocumented migrant. I've been organizing with immigrant communities for over a decade, both in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., um, and all of my work is pretty much committed to uh, trans uh, migrants. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. Thank Yay. you. Thank you. This is our big here. time interview. That's how we really think about this. this is our big time interview. <laughs> yes. like, we really have arrived. We have. Like, this is when Amazon really gonna come actually sponsor us and pick this up. Because we have what, in our minds... we turn them down. Yeah, this is us a celebrity. That's how we feel about you and your work. That's really the honest to God truth. <laughs> paid attention to our series that we run in the month of February for Black History Month, Alan has, I think, spoken twice now. Yes. So each time has just been impeccable. I highly recommend that you go back in the archives Literally. and find Alan's uh, teachings there, but also follow them. Alan, where can folks follow you? I am on Twitter and on Instagram as at Migrant Scribble. Perfect. And if people want to know, like, do you have a website or if people want to know where else they could book you, you know what I mean, to pay for the labor? Where can they find you? Always at? pay for the labor. Always. I do. I do. So my website is my name. So it's www.alan, so A-L-A-N, Belize, P-E-L-A-E-Z.com. 
Okay, and I'll make sure to have that inside a link to that in the description for this podcast. So it'll be easily accessible for all of y'all. Yes. So book a line immediately. Immediately. Okay, so we're gonna ice break this conversation with talking about what annoys us in our work. Is that the question? Is that yeah, that's right? what annoys you. What is annoying, or what is annoying you right now? Maybe just general, or or Whatever what's annoying you, you in your work? That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Like to give an example, is like things, the things that people have the resistance most around, um, as far as your work is concerned, like things uh, that people really have trouble grasping and you can't understand for the life of you, you know, all these many years you've done this work, um, around Latini dot or, you know, Af- uh, Afro Latinx identities and being Afro Mexican. Like what, what is it about some of the conversations and some of the work that you do that people have the strongest resistance to that you're just, you're just like, I don't understand why you have that business. Y'all, this question could take me hours to answer. Let's go. Let's get it. But I think that the top things is this idea that um, immigrants think that because they experience xenophobia, that they could never be racist or anti-Black. And it's so hard for for them to understand um, that... Anybody who has migrated to the U.S., regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, can experience xenophobia. But mm-hmm. anti-Blackness is particular to um, the Black condition, the Black experience, and a larger history of violence, um, not just in the Americas, but worldwide. And the other thing that annoys me is that people literally just think um, that my work is like me being angry or venting when my work is actually about imagining a future yeah. that uh, rebukes everything we've inherited under a white supremacist right. like settler yeah. uh, state. Wow. I really resonate with both, but also the second one and that people relate to the work that we do like it's just personal, not also political. Yeah. Uh, and that it is not other people's very very much lived experience and what is actually happening in the world, not some personal, just very specific experience that we are upset about. And that is it, it, that, that might be a part of it. Right. But there's so much more. Mm-hmm. I feel like this idea that we are just angry and that's the end of it really diminishes anger first and foremost, but also diminishes yes. why we are angry. Um, yes. It's just another form of gaslighting that is just deeply, upsetting an experience that i had recently with that too um that you know it makes you gaslighting makes you feel like you have done something wrong and makes you feel like there's no way for you to retort because you are just in the wrong so it takes a second to be like wait a minute exactly it's okay for me to be upset and also yes i am this identity and i get to talk about how people who have shared identities to mine are also impacted. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. That, I totally resonate with that. So thank you for sharing that. What is annoying you, Eb? Uh, What annoys me lately? Um, We are kind of pivoting, I guess, but not really. But um, there's been a, you know, a line you've heard about the Dave Chappelle situation. Yes. With the mm-hmm. transphobic jokes and different things like that. Mm-hmm. Um you know, kind of shilling for the white folks. That's really what I think a lot of Dave Chappelle's comedy sort of appeals. So I think that's a part of the target audience. But I guess what was annoying me, similar to what you were saying, Alon, is that a lot of people were like, 
you know, even some trans, black trans people and like a few white trans comedians, because um Dave Chappelle had befriended a white trans comedian. Um uh I believe their name was Daphne Dorman, and their family came out in support of Dave Chappelle and was like, Dave Chappelle is an ally, and like there's no way that he could be transphobic and that you know, he loves the LGBT community and then people being like, oh, you know, just because Dave Chappelle or a few black trans people or, you know, a, a, a couple of white trans people were like, Dave Chappelle is okay. You know, those jokes are fine. And these are just jokes that that then somehow authenticates what he said about trans people for the world. Like that, that is now that there are a few individual trans people who are now the authority on the, on him being transphobic or not rather mm -hmm. than it's just what he said was transphobic whether y'all agree with it or believe yeah. it or not yeah. and I think a lot of times you know uh, marginalized folks are conditioned to accept um, transphobia and accept racism and accept xenophobia um, sort of as a way to be accepted in society by accepting the society's aggressions and behaviors toward us you know, but then people will misconstrue that as, oh, well, an this an opinion like this trans person said Dave Chappelle is not transphobic, so there shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. You know, and I just don't, I don't understand how one person's opinion, personal thought could then overshadow, you know, the worldwide trend of, you know, black trans women being killed, you know, based on the same rhetoric in Dave Chappelle's jokes. Because if you want to do something, you are going to find a way to continue doing it. I want to go to Hawaii so bad. Hawaiians yeah. have been saying, stop coming to Hawaii. Yeah. Just stop. It is harming Hawaii. There are people who find one Hawaiian person that will say, it's fine. And then that will be their reason to go to Hawaii. Yeah. Well, this person said it. So people just want to do whatever the hell they want to do. But let's get into Yes, that that was my that was a that was annoying it's me. Beyond but it's annoying. Yeah, but it's similar yeah. to what Alan was saying about, you know, this idea that because a person is an immigrant that they couldn't possibly be xenophobic. Yes. You know, and we yes. I see that all, all the, time the time as well. All, all the, the time. time. So let's jump into this discourse with Alan here. Alan, you have focused a lot of your work in dismantling this idea that Latinidad is real. Mm -hmm. And we, I would love if you could explain to folks what is Latinidad and also how it impacts people. Yeah, thank you. So I think that I'll start with a story. Um, one of the first stories that I remember my mom sharing with me about racial violence was my mother was in a public bus and mm -hmm. the bus driver literally made her get out of the bus um, and waited until a uh, police person either um, came by on a motorcycle or on a car and literally reported my mom because uh, the bus driver just couldn't believe that she was a Mexican citizen. Wow. Um, and the police literally asked my mother for papers and forced her to sing the national anthem and answer questions about Mexican identity. And eventually, like, she was let go. Um, that's wow. one of the first stories my mom ever shared with me about anti-Blackness in our country of birth. And when I moved to the US, there was this notion that because I was from Latin America, I was supposed to have a community here. Um, but what does it mean when in our home country we're already marked as like foreigners or aliens or a threat to the nation? And then we're in the US where there's this idea of performative unity. Um, it just yeah. makes no space 
for people who have experienced anti-Blackness or settler violence in their mm-hmm. nations uh, or their countries of birth to actually have honest conversations about the violence of um, states and police and borders. So for me, um, the way that I understand Latinidad is a concept that was supposed to um, help people survive xenophobia in the U.S., especially U.S. imperialism. But um, in doing so, because they were not rooted in a, in a Black liberation framework and because they were not rooted in an abolitionist framework, it ended up um, protecting people from Latin America who were adjacent to whiteness, who in their countries of birth, they were the people in power. But once they got to the U.S., they saw that power um, kind of like be taken away from them because of their immigration status or because of the way that they came to the U.S. Um, and now there's all of these white folk from Latin America fighting back for the white supremacist power that they lost, um, aligning themselves with Latinidad and using it as an excuse to continue perpetuating anti-Blackness, like indigenous erasure, um, violence against like Asian folk, um, and also transphobia and homophobia is yeah. very much rooted in Latinidad because in Latin America, gender, sexuality, sexual performances, body presentation is policed. Mm-hmm. Wow. First, I just want to take a second for how that experience lives in your body and mm-hmm. also that of your mothers and your ancestors and f- folks all around you and people who also witnessed that. Uh, I think we don't hold enough space for the stuff that we go through and the stories that we tell, especially as educators who use those stories to also really make the point and drive the point home of how serious this is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just want to just take a second just to honor, you know, the, the how you've had to, whatever you've had to do to navigate that situation, whether it be therapy or prayer or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, I just, I thank you for sharing that with us and thank just you. don't want to step over the healing process that is, that has been required to really navigate that. Yes. Yes. Thank you both. Thank you. Of course. So do you, I think what one of the most interesting, interesting things that you said too, is that, you know, in, you know, Latin American countries, you'll find that, you know, white Latinx folks have this, you know, sort of just attachment to whiteness, but in the United States, I don't know if white people are even honoring Latinidad. Do you think that that is a thing? Like white people are also like, yes, I honor you as a a whole person, even to white Latinx folks are honoring Latinidad as a system or are they just relating to it as, I don't know if they're relating. I don't know if they're relating to it, to Mm -hmm. Latinx folks as human in that way. And so Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's like, yeah, I, this is a, a, we recognize you also as white. Right. Other white people, you you know. And the the other European. Yes, white people in the United States in particular, but also in. in, But they all from the same place because Spain. 
Yeah, it, but but I don't. But I think the way Latini dot, it, at least how I'm understanding it, yes. is iterating itself is that it is a way to reinforce. Yeah, like Alana said, to reinforce you know that power. Yeah, you know over black people. Oh, it's you very know good. in Latin America. But I'm like, I don't think the. Can you speak to like the relationship? I think between whiteness in the United States and Latini dot, like. Is there interaction? Like, are white mm. people honoring that, like, as a thing? That's a great question because I think that exactly this that you just named, Ebony, is what um, white Latinx people use to um, evade accountability and responsibility. A lot of white Latinx, like Latinx, Latino, Latina, Latina people in the U.S., they say like we're different than white Americans because white Americans also see us as subaltern. Um, and the thing is that. That might be the case in certain geographical landscapes, but the reality is that um, white Latin Americans do not need the um, the co-signage of um, white Americans because white Latin Americans have made it very clear to other Latin Americans that they are the ones um, who are dis- the desirable like Latinx citizen. Um, I think that there is some recognition where, of white Americans to white La- Latinx people, and that comes in the sector of business. Um, we don't talk about how Latin America has like such a fucking um, big class um, issue yeah. and how rich Latin America is. And there are so yes. many white Americans who do business exchanges in yes. Latin America, and they're in those rooms. Everybody there is white. They make the offers that they make, and they uh, because they understand each other's kinship as white people. Mm. Um, and it and the reason why Latin America is in this position of subjugation is because white Latin Americans and white people in the U.S. and Canada um, are working together. Um, because if they don't work together, then there's already so many uprises in Latin America, as there are in the U.S. and Canada. Um, but because Latin American countries are so much smaller, those uprisers seem to be much more threatening than the ones in Canada and the U.S. because of the landscape of the geography. Um, yes. There is fear. And I do think that um, white Americans and white Latin Americans work together. One of the ways where it becomes clear is in how Cubans are treated Um Cuba has been used by the United States as this um, as, as a form of political theater where the U.S. has said, like, Cubans who come into the U.S., once they hit foot on U.S. territory, they're going to be granted some form of status. Um, and a few, like, in the early 2000s, there was this huge case where... Um, a Cuban boat of Black Cubans um, was at sea and they got onto um, a broken down bridge. The bridge wasn't actually connected to um, like physical land in the U.S. It was like, re- it was on the water. Um, and the, what the what the um, immigration did was they literally, um, when the Cubans got to the soil, they literally sent them back to Cuba because they were Black. If they had been white, those Cubans would have gotten to stay in the U.S. Cuba is a really interesting uh, case study when thinking about the relationships of whiteness, Blackness, and migration, because white Cubans have created this narrative of absolute disrod of um, 
white Americans sympathize so much with white Cubans, but will never sympathize with black Cubans, particularly because Cuba's not a light-skinned island. Cuba is a pretty dark-skinned island. Um, And I see how um, whiteness operates in this level where... (laughs) The U.S. is protecting white Cubans um, and and telling everybody else, look at these migrants. They're coming in the right way. And by that, they mean we're allowing white Cubans to come in. We're making it easier for them. But if it's anybody else, um, then it's a little bit harder, like we did in in the early 2000s, where we just sent that boat back, even though they were on a bridge that was on the U.S. side of the water. Wow. That's like, I just... And that also makes me think, too, about, you know, the relationship, like the economic relationships. I'm thinking about the Chicago, have you heard of the Chicago Boys? Is that from, um, it's like a group of, in the 60s and 70s, like a group of white investors, I think, who went to either. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, just that economic relationship, like literally, you know, I don't know, was it Peru? Uh, Chile, 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 literally like the Chilean government handing over, you know, the uh, economic resources, you know, of their country over to a group, a small group of white men from Chicago, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like handing, handing their, you know, literal resources over to them on a platter. It's not even like they were a government entity or anything. It's like a group of white cis men investors. It's like that would never happen with any other group. Right. Because allegedly they protect each other, you know, but like that's not how supremacy works. (laughs) No, it's not protected. It reminds me of aid in other countries Mm -hmm. when the the presence of any sort of white person, just a literal physical white person means money um, because so much aid has been, because they've been related to as saviors. Yeah, benefactors. And, and benefit, yeah. and folks that are going to save, you know, this, the, this is a, 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 a horrible word, but the savage, like that sort of relationship uh-huh. and how uh, folks, especially in, on the continent of Africa, relate to themselves and relate to white people is really fascinating. Yeah. And I think it's similar in these instances. Well, because again, white supremacy is global i think too like that speaks to like my annoyance yeah sometimes is that people think that it is just i guess this jumps around in this 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 discussion but people will say um people will say this is not a white and a black issue when they're talking about white when i'm talking about white supremacy specifically or talking about racial and social injustice and that is a way i think to pivot away from centering black people in the conversation, mm-hmm. but it's also a way, I think, to take white people off the hook, yeah. right? To really like sort of say, even to talk about how, and we could get into what that means is communities of color and black people, how we interact, right? Talking about that mm-hmm. sort of the influx that was around this past year over the uh, in the spring when we're talking about the rise in uh, Asian American violence and a lot of Asian American folks were being anti-black in a lot of those uh, conversations mm-hmm. saying that the the person that was doing it were black people right so I feel like there's just always this protection of whiteness and white people that I see all of the time in so many different ways. Like it's mm-hmm. not always just very blatant, 
right? No. Sometimes it's like, I'm giving you all my money to take care of me yeah. because that is what you're supposed to do. And I know that you'll do it. A and government. I don't trust nobody, no Chilean, black Chilean person no. to do it. <laughs> no. While I actually use the labor and of black Chilean people primarily yes. um, or poor Chilean people uh, in order to and exploit them in order to give to enrich the United States. Yes. And I think that is the the schema. Yes. Um, so I see that all the time. And I also think it is a huge uh, those type of conversations. Oh, you know, racial and social justice is just it's not just a black and white conversation. Mm-hmm. That is an erasure of the fact that anti blackness is global. Like you were saying, Erica, mm-hmm. like it, it does say, you know, the only type of time we're going to talk about Cuba is when we talk about Fidel Castro, we're going to ignore the impact of that on black Cuban people. We're going to say that they don't Mm -hmm. exist. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to talk about during Juneteenth, how the Mexican government didn't participate in slavery and, you know, wanted to ban slavery or didn't allow slavery, but then we're not going to talk about present day, you know, how uh, Afro-Mexican people are treated and being erased in Mexico. Like, we're not going to talk about any of that. You know, we're just going to talk about you know, black people and white, like, it's just, I don't know. That it just annoys me. That annoys me. Um, There's a, I was working at um, a nonprofit and they were racist. No surprise there. And we created, um, what are they called? The groups that you, affinity groups. Mm -hmm. We created affinity groups and they were the PLC group and the white group. And I think that's all the breakdown that it was. PLC and white. Yeah. And there was a white Latinx person that wanted to be in the PLC group. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm, I wrote them an email and my other staff person may have written them an email at the time to say like, it's not actually appropriate that you're a part of this group because it's also a power differential also no surprise there that this white Latinx person was literally the top of the organization. Mm -hmm. So it felt like one, you want to come to the POC group to surveil what we're talking about, but also, you know, damn well (laughs) that you are not related to as someone that is a person of color. Mm -hmm. And now this is where I'm curious, Alon, to how you feel like, where do these, just how do you where do you stand on these descriptors things like poc bipoc BIPOC, even the even the term of phrasing of hispanic right like i is that a function of latinidad as well to try to like get away from actually dealing with your whiteness because that's what i'm seeing oftentimes yep yeah i think that that idea of POC, BIPOC um, is really difficult to navigate because mm-hmm. um, there, there is power in community, right? But there's also this assumption that because one is like an immigrant or one is first or second or third gen, one um, has a right to claim certain communities as there. And I think a lot about like BIPOC, like, Indigenous is not a race or ethnicity or a culture. Indigeneity is an everyday legal, historical, spiritual okay. con- uh, like condition. Wow. Um, and to group Indigenous people with like a POC identity kind of like already excludes land violence. It kind of excludes um, legally specific violence. Um, yeah 
to in, to include like <clears throat> black people in POC, it already um, tells black people we'll only center you as long as it's like light skinned black people because um, light skinned black people can appeal to non black uh, actual like racialized people of color. Um, and what I notice a lot in POC spaces is that it's like people who look like me, who are very light skinned, who are the ones who um, get the approval of the rest of the group when they do talk about blackness because their yeah. lightness allows other people to be like, oh, maybe you're actually right as opposed to the other darker skinned people that I hear. I think they're just complaining. Um, but for you, because we're an approximation to skin tone, um, I'll believe it. Um, and I think that these these groups, BIPOC and POC, um, operate in really colorist ways. Um, I think a lot about my work as an organizer. I've been organizing for about um, 12 years. Mm. And a few years ago, um, I was working on, <clears throat> I was working with multiple organizations to try to have like a, a legal case going about uh, a trans um, woman who died in a detention center. And one of the people in an organization that I was a part of was having a really hard time being part of the campaign because they said, I was in this detention with this person and what happened to her was absolutely horrible. And also as a dark-skinned Black woman and this person as a non-Black person, this person turned guards and other detainees against me because I was dark-skinned. Mm. I have no... I have no relationship to this person. The only things I have are memories of anti-Blackness. I can't be on this team. I can't bring anything um, to the conversation. And for me, as an organizer, it was very like, holy shit, this is the reality. Um, this is the the things that we will not understand if we continue to operate groups as like, oh, POC, BIPOC, or like Latinx, right? Because these both women were trans. Both of them are from Latin America. Mm -hmm. One is a dark-skinned Black person. One was a non-Black person who, inside a detention center, was also accusing this dark-skinned Black person and reporting them to guards. Yeah. Right? So I think that all of these terminologies fall apart when we're talking about how the state enacts violence onto the bodies of racialized people. Absolutely, absolutely. And I feel, what do you feel? You say that, it's like so crystal clear, but then there is still a denial of the ways in which the state enacts violence. Like I think people are, will literally focus on interpersonal mm -hmm. violence, right? They'll focus on what's happening between maybe in a personal anecdotal experience, what's happened to them maybe a few times in a job or mm -hmm. in it or on the subway or something. But in terms of institutionalized mm -hmm. violence, it is like an erasure or just a, a like that doesn't exist mm -hmm. or that doesn't matter. What is most important, I think in the, what am I trying to say, Ev? And like the consciousness of what is deemed as this is actually the person we need to care about, or this is racist, or this is an action we need to move forward on is oftentimes not institutional. Do you get what no, I'm saying? No, no. Yeah. No, I understand. And I think too, it just the story that Alan just spoke about, where it's like, you know, you have somebody, two people, two trans women in a detention center and 
they, you know, are experiencing anti-Blackness and it's not lost on them that one, the detention center itself is a form of state violence, um, anti-Black state violence against them, but also that that has affected the, the other people that they are in there with who have similar identities to them. It's not like, you know, it's lost on them that in their experience that, you know, the people that they're detained with aren't also going to be colorists. You know, it's just a mind fuck that that happens, you know, especially in that place where, you know, even as a black person, I sometimes think that, you know, we're because black folks, you know, across the diaspora, like we're similarly, you know, subjugated and used by the state, you know, to uh, uh, without at the risk of sounding too hotepian, you know, to comfort one another, you know what I mean? And to not, you know, like you said, there's power and community, but I always find that you know, even in this quote unquote BIPOC space in, in, in my life, especially living in Oakland, a place where, you know, I'm around people who are Vietnamese and I grew up around Mexican people and I grew up around uh, people from Guatemala and El, Salva- and El Salvador, like going, I mean, since literally kindergarten, you know, these are the people who I live around, Cambodian people, Tongan people, and to kind of see us situated so closely in poverty, but still not relate to one another in a way of, okay, I really truly understand that white people are the issue and that whiteness is the problem. It's like, no, we become the problem. Like the the sort of, when I moved to LA, it was so interesting to me, just the relationships that Mexican people had, Mexican American people and people, you know, um, from Mexico had, you know, the, the relationships between black people in, LA, in South Central LA, and Mexican people was so fraught, like, and it was so segregated, and it really, truly surprised me, um, and I didn't really understand that, but then I'm like, I do understand it. If we all hella poor, we all in the South Central, I think there is this, um, you can't see the institution necessarily, but you can see the people around you, mm-hmm. and they seem like the easier target. Okay. You know. Okay. Uh, does that make sense, Alon? It does, and I really love the, that you framed it that way of, like, we see the people, we don't see the institution, because I think that that's what is happening in this whole debate of, like, Latinidad or Latinx. It's, um, you know, people who don't like the, the shift to Latinx or Latine yeah. are, like, blaming other people right instead of saying oh fuck it's nation states that's the problem (laughs) like they're the ones that like assigned gender to us um without us ever consenting to it it's brilliant and why do you think alan that is why do people why do you think that it's like why why is that why is it the the nation is it the nation state is not Held to account. Held to account. Like, why? Like, I don't, I, I, I really want an answer to it. I'm just asking you because I'm like, help me. <laughs> like, help me figure out, like, why do people say stuff like, oh, well, I know somebody and they, you know, they're talking about being called Latinx, but they're comfortable with being called Hispanic. Like, I just, sometimes I think about that because the way that the census works in the United States and the identity markers and labeling um, folks from different Latin American countries that actually, in my opinion, it takes away from who they actually are so that white people, the government, have an easier catch-all way of grouping people. You know, like, do, what do you what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll give you two answers, one yes. based in the U.S. and one from the position of Latin America. Yes. 
so in the U.S., the census um, used Hispanic um, to kind of say anybody from Latin America is Hispanic, regardless of race and ethnicity, right? Um, and Hispanic became this really institutional way of putting all of these people that the state didn't know what to do with them together. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that moment forward, you know, the the place that perpetuates like Hispanidad the most is probably the education system, right? Yeah. You have like migrants, first gen, second gen people in the K through 12 education system being identified as Hispanic. Um, so for them, that is their identity because they're um, displaced from their heritage countries. And a lot of people who are in the U.S. become really nationalistic. Mm. And they use nationalism as a, as a reclamation to a somewhere else. But what happens in that nationalistic thinking is that um, they begin to, to fantasize about their heritage country. And because they're fantasizing, they're not witnessing what is happening in their heritage country to the people living there in that moment. And they also know very little history about their heritage country. Um, And for them, like being Hispanic um, is, is a sense of pride because they've been racialized, not by their race, their physical pigmentation, but they're racialized on the level of accent. You know, a lot of, a lot of like first, second gen folk, like their first language is not English because their parents are trying to first teach them their heritage language with might, might be Spanish, might be Dutch, might be Haitian Creole, might be French, uh, might be an indigenous language from Latin America. Um, so some of them might be white, but because they have an accent, they'll be racialized as non-white. Um, and then they hold on to Hispanic as an identity of like, no, this is who I am, even um, when I am misidentified as something else. When I'm thinking about Latin America, in Latin America, um, Latino, Latina is used uh, um, a lot more um, more loosely. And I barely hear Hispano or Hispana um, I think that because the trans- the Spanish translation to Latin America is Latino America or America Latina, mm-hmm. um, in Latin America, Latino or Latina is just a short shorthand for Latin American. Yes, it's not necessarily like oh, of like Latin American descent. It's just like oh, we're Latin American, um, and it also operates fraud um, in a fraudulent way. Um, at the beginning of this year, I got really sick and I had no access to medical treatment. So I moved back to Mexico. Yeah. And in Mexico, um, I've, I've tweeted about this a few times, but I was literally um, in like our village, which is a pretty, which is a black village. There's literally a sign that says, Orgullosamente Afro-Mexicanos, proudly Afro-Mexican. And I was in the nearest city, which is an hour out. And I was on a fucking bus in that city. And um, like police went inside and asked me for my papers, right? So in that moment, I couldn't be like Latine in like Mexico (laughs) because I was being asked for my papers. Um, A few months later, I brought my grandma to Mexico City um, and we were in a taxi and the taxi driver asked me um, what country in Latin Latin America I was from and if I was like um, working for my grandmother, if I was her aide. And in those moments, I was like, oh, like, yes, even in Latin America, the notion of Latino, Latina, Latine falls apart when it relates to, like, Black subjects. And I see it a lot in um, Asian diasporic subjects. Um, 
in in Mexico City, there is like a, a big Korean and Japanese diaspora. Well, not I'm using big loosely. It's actually not that big. Right. <laughs> and it's just always wild to me because there's hella Asian restaurants in uh, Mexico. And whenever I whenever I'm sitting down in one of them and I hear other tables, they're like in shock that some of the Asian employees are speaking Spanish. Mm. And I'm just like, we're fucking in Mexico. Like, why are you shocked that employees in the country are speaking Spanish? And they're also shocked that their Spanish sounds like, quote unquote, Mexican Spanish, right? And is this notion of like, Latinidad falls apart in your yeah. country of birth when you incorporate um, races um, or ethnicities or cultures that are not identifiable as mestizos or mestizas. Black people in Latin America aren't really seen as mestizos, mestizas, mestices, and Asian diaspora people are also not seen as mestizos, mestizos, or mestices. Um, A lot of indigenous people, even if they don't speak Spanish, um, in Latin America, a lot of people will be like, oh yeah, they're mestizo or mestiza, because for them, mestizaje um, is just a way to say, we're all the same. And they don't mm. want to be seen as like um, anti-Indigenous or unaware of Indigenous people in their country. So they, they're just like, oh no, they're like mestizo or mestiza or mestice. Um, mestizaje in Latin America um, was a strategic form of, of kind of saying, okay, we, we're, we're colonizing hella countries um, and people are probably going to be mad. So let's introduce this new orientation to life where we're all going to live amongst one another and we're essentially um, like European people are going to be pardoned because we've created a new race, which is the the melting pot. Yeah, the melting pot. But it's like, Europe was just like, this is the way that we're going to evade accountability. Yeah. Not only are we going to create a new race, but the new race that we create, we are going to um, acculturate them into an understanding that um, Europe made the Americas better. Um, And that's why we see such a latch to the Spanish language. That's why Latinx as a word, people always fight about it because they're like, oh, it doesn't make sense in Spanish. And it's like, like, a lot of people in Latin America don't fucking speak Spanish. Yeah. Um, and people are like, oh, Hispanic this, Hispanic that. And I'm like, a lot of people in America have not a single trace to Spain or Portugal. Hispanic comes from Hispania, which is the mountain Iberian Peninsula of Spain and Portugal. And I'm like, very few people come from the Iberian Peninsula. Um, <laughs> and And it's wild because this notion of Latino, Latina, Latine, Latinex, um, Hispanic is, um, leaves out literally indigenous people from Latin America. Like indigenous people can never be included in this because for indigenous people to be thought about as Latinx, then like it, it's a violence to think of an indigenous person as Latinx because yeah. the whole point of an indigenous future is the nation states are over. Exactly. Mm. And Latino, Latina, Latinx, and Hispanic descent on, on the nation state, the conditional possibility for these identity formations is settler colonialism. Mm-hmm. 
And when I say Latinidad is canceled, what I am saying is we need to end the, uh, the project of settler colonialism, but we can only do that if we disidentify with Latinidad in the same way that a lot of Black Americans have disidentified with the U.S. empire, in the same way that a lot of like Indigenous people have disidentified with the nation states that they were born in. Yeah. Um, and that is so difficult for people to understand because they want um, the power and the privileges that settler colonialism offers them. And those powers and privileges being they want a surveilled heterosexuality. Mm-hmm. They want a binary gender. Yeah. Um, they want uh, to continue operating um, in monetary um, ways. They, they understand capitalism and capitalism works for them right now. And if we cancel nation states, then capitalism also has to end. And they yep. don't know how to deal with that. Um, so I think that the conversation about Latinidad has nothing to do with like identity. It has everything to do with the commitments to settler colonialism. Jeez Louise. You I mean, the way you just went off. <laughs> uh wow. I'm just thinking about lots of things. Like the for I took a note while you were speaking because I thought the creation of Hispanic through our educational systems and the role that educational systems play as they are connected to the state. Uh, the violence that they participate in to disillusion people from who they are, Mm -hmm. right? To really make them feel as if they have no power, right? To really remove um, any sort of hope to disrupt, Mm -hmm. right? And and, right, and power Mm -hmm. in naming themselves and and there's right, and that's still that exists also around trans and non-binary identities. But what made me think too is the psychological warfare that's created Mm -hmm. and black people have in the United States have really created for themselves a whole culture, right? And a whole identity that never existed, right? From Mm -hmm. nothing, there are so many, this is, we are descendants of indigenous Africans um, in this country and throughout um, Latin America, right? And uh, right, all over the Caribbean, the world, world, right? (laughs) Yes. And I just think about the fact that then in the United States, we are lumped as black people. Mm-hmm. Right. There is no right. There's no like which and, and you can, you know, talk even the the presence of um, what the hell are those things? 23 and me, those those the sort of, ancestry, those kids. ancestry kids. They don't tell me what indigenous tribe I came from. Mm-hmm. They just say I'm from Africa or Benin right, or right, West Africa. Right. They don't they don't go to that extent right and they're also highly surveilled so i'm not recommending anybody use them either but i'm just saying how the lumping process happens Mm -hmm. and i don't think i've ever heard it explained in the same way that that is the same thing that has happened to people who identify as latinx latine right and i just i never got that so clear until you said that yes i'm also thinking about some people know this and i think you know this as well alan is that i went to high school in puerto rico and I lived there for about 20 years. And my growing up, everybody assumed that I was a gringa, right? And everybody would talk to me that way. And we lived in the southern part of Puerto Rico in Ponce, where there, the process of uh, eugenics and uh, what has also happened in Mexico, the blanqueamiento of Puerto Rico, had, that 
that process has been complete. Mm -hmm. So my family, my dad, my brother, and myself really stuck out like sore thumbs in this area, the second largest city to be exact. Wow. Um, Because most of the people are white. So people would always assume that I spoke English and the assumption was correct Mm -hmm. because I did. But then when my sister was born, who is, looks exactly like me. She's a step darker than me. Mm-hmm. People were shocked to hear her speak Spanish. And mm-hmm. they were shocked in the way she recently told me that people will be shocked how well she speaks English. Yeah. Right? So some of the same things that I, sort of the same anti-Black rhetoric around speaking English that I endured in the United States is the same thing that she's experiencing in Puerto Rico as well. Mm-hmm. Also the denial of her as a Puerto Rican, right? To the point where she's like, Erica, I don't know. Am I black? Am I Afro-Latina? It's like, what am I? Like, I don't yeah. know because so many, for so long, people have really worked really hard to disregard who my identity, right? And yeah. it, it just breaks my heart to witness, but also reminds me of teenager Erica, really confused why mm-hmm. Puerto Ricans who I've been trained to think we all just come together again as people of color yeah. were being anti-black in mm-hmm. my direction. Right. Yeah. So it, it, you just really woke my game up to so many things, but also just made me present to my own experience. Yeah. yeah. And I'll say the same thing. It's like, Alain, you really just, you seasoned me. Like I really, <laughs> I'm marinating on so much yes. that you are saying, like even this concern, just so much of, how the psychological warfare, you know, mm-hmm. that happens in a place like Mexico to where now, you know, black people are being accosted by the police in where in their, you know, ancestral home or their ancestral land. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And also thinking about there's a concern about, you know, people being um anti-indigenous, like people there's a or white uh Latinx people being anti-indigenous, but there's no concern about them being anti-black. Mm-hmm. Like that's how deep that that, that settler colonial mindset has gone. That's mm-hmm. how the that's really how far it's gone. Mm-hmm. So where you literally have concerns, but they don't extend to black people. You you know who've always existed. But where else there. does that happen? Right here, right here, <laughs> live from Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> you, know, still, you know it really. It makes me think of just mm-hmm. again how not creative white supremacy yeah. is it's just so not creative yeah it just keeps replicating itself in yeah. so many places and i think the frustration that i have in uh latinx latine uh, communities is that this desire for it to be unique yeah is that this is happening to me and this is my experience because you're black there's no way you could experience that and also to the afro latinx people who have a shared identity with them. It's like, you couldn't possibly understand what I'm dealing with because this is unique. It's not. No, and no shade. Can't no black person be no gringa. Like, I'm just gonna put that That's out there. That's what they would I say. don't know a line. I don't know. Green you know, you tell me gringa. I don't know. I just don't. That don't. I'm a fugitive. You feel what I'm saying? Like, you know what I mean? I'm a gringo. Like, I don't have nothing to do with that. And that's wild that they would call me a gringo when there's people in on the island who look just like me uh, and they're Puerto Rican. What will they call them then? Right. Exactly. Ooh, Eric, I want to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Louisa. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, Mayra Santos Febres, who is um, a Black Puerto Rican um, writer, and I, she actually teaches at um, University of Puerto Rico. Um, she was talking of like a year and a half ago, she was talking about how she was in a grocery store um, and people were shocked that she was speaking Spanish because they assumed that she was like, like you said, Erika, Erika, a gringa. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just like, Mayra Santos Febres is one of the most cited writers in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Yes. And even with that much visibility, even with being affiliated with like the, the largest university in the island, she's still unimaginable. Um, and it's about this thing. It's about like these Puerto Ricans have, have craft, the ones who can't imagine her as Puerto Rican, they have imagined a future where Black people do not exist. Yes. That is the root of it, because the, the way white supremacy works is, yes, white supremacy operates at the level of the everyday, but white supremacy is um, about a long-term vision. Mm-hmm. That's why we have things like ableism, fat phobia, homophobia, transphobia, and that's why they all root to white supremacy. In the, in the future, the white supremacists have imagined all of these... Um, lived experiences and all of these people are eradicated. That's why we always have to say it's all rooted to this larger project. And it's yeah. a project about the future as much as it is a project about the past and the mm. present. Mm. Um, and in the same way, when people in Latin America get shocked that Asian diasporic people are speaking Spanish, it's about the future that they've imagined. They imagine a Latin America with no Asian people, um, which which is also like an anti-Indigenous framework that assumes that like Indigenous people People are like landlocked like a lot of indigenous people like don't like they don't live in their ancestral lands like most of the year you know i come from a village that it rains four months in a row and in in rain season it is a fucking disaster most of the a lot of houses fall apart a lot of the kitchens are outdoors so like our kitchens need to be reconstructed every year because we are from a um Creole community where runaways like were safe because nobody else was living there, but right. it's not a sustainable landscape to live in year round. Right. So also to assume right. that indigeneity is about a landlocked, um, again, realigns with borders and nation states yeah. and it's no relationship to indigeneity. Um, and when we think about futures and can't imagine other people, then we're also being anti-indigenous because um, most indigenous people in the U.S., um, like reservations are not in the ancestral homelands of those people. Reservations are geographic landscapes where colonizers thought these like communities would die. Yes. Um, and when we can't imagine certain people in certain spaces, we have to be like, oh, how is this a commitment to settler colonialism? Mm. That's well. And I, it makes me wow. wonder if, 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 what is the, for the settler colon, which I, for the colonizing, which I don't care about, but I am concerned, like, what, what, what is they, what do they imagine about themselves? Or, you know, there is no imagination. There is no imagination. It's There's like, no it, imagination. It's, it is, it's done. Mm-hmm. It does the, where the imagination has died yeah. inside of whiteness. It literally, yes. it consumes it. Yes. There is no way as a person, a white person living in Mexico that you can imagine you can be any different way 
than what pe white people have told you you have to be once you subscribe mm -hmm. to being that. Mm -hmm. When you start mm -hmm. to look at other people, uh, 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 black people and Asian people, you, or, or anybody else who doesn't fit inside of that schema as mm -hmm. not a part or a gringo or you know separate from you, mm -hmm. you know yeah. it, it's it's like yeah that was deep. Mm -hmm. That was deep. It deep. makes me think of how often Puerto Ricans will say we are uh, Spanish, we are Taino, and we are African. And it's always a mix of the three, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, It's not. oh, I'm just Spanish descendant or mm -hmm. I'm just um, Taino descendant. It's a mix of the three. It's a commitment to a mix of the three um, and a leaning to a light skin or a white person. And that is what is... When I went to Puerto Rico when I was 14, I thought Puerto Ricans looked like Jennifer Lopez mm -hmm. and Mark Anthony. Like, I didn't have any understanding that Puerto Ricans also could look like me. Yeah. Right? Like, that was, and that was reiterated in novellas, in the people around me. But it was, it was so, my eyes were wide open when I started to realize that is just not the case. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, this is just wild. This is wild. No, absolutely. And you know, uh... I wish that I could say this more often. So I'm going to say it now. <laughs> yes, say it. Say um, it. People of Latin American descent need to understand that um, their identity is never going to protect them. It's never like their identity doesn't matter. What matters is their actions. And like, like people like light-skinned Black people like me who have hella visibility, like, in the U.S., um, I, I think that there is, like, a brand of Afro-Latinidad in the U.S., and that brand looks like me. Mm. Um, like, I am the acceptable Negro under the eyes of white supremacy. Mm. Um, and, like, I think the light-skinned Black people need to understand that, like, we need to betray our lightness. Um, and betraying our lightness means giving up a lot of the power that we... Um, accessed because um, we were conditioned to move through the world in colorist ways. Mm. Um, and we need to get over this idea of like, oh, well, we deserve this. Like, okay, sometimes the shit that we got is not because we deserved it. It's because we screwed dark-skinned Black people over. Okay. Um, like, earning a degree, like, okay, yeah, you went to school, but like, were you actually a good person? Yeah, mm. and I think that what white Latinx people need to do is really betray their whiteness so that they can actually be useful for any liberation struggle in Latin America. Um, because yeah. if they do not betray their whiteness, they're going to perpetuate one of the things that's happening in Latin America right now. Right now, turfism has like invaded a lot of feminist spaces in Latin America mm -hmm. that used to be super like radical and had um, a trans analysis are now TERFs. Wow. And that's because white supremacist ideology has led certain people to understand that as long as they align themselves to empire, they're going to be okay despite being a gendered minority. Yes. Um, and white people need to start like trying so badly to be like Latinx and, and try harder to be in solidarity with actual like things happening, not only in Latin America, but to people of Latin American descent across borders. Yes. Um, Cause when I think about like the border crisis, quote unquote, right? Like, um, 
song. <laughs> I feel so angry right now. And I want to be angry. Let's be do angry. It. This is the platform for this that. Is, <laughs> this <laughs> is the angry podcast. We just renamed it. <laughs> right before the pandemic happened in 2019, um, I went to um, the the border in, in Tijuana with... Um, four other colleagues. Um, I was the only, so my other four other colleagues were dark skinned black people. Um, they were all migrants, but they all had, um, um, what is it when you, be, you become a resident and you become a citizen, they had, um, is it a green card? Uh, no, they had, um, visa. Mm-mm. They were, um, naturalized. Naturalized, oh, yeah. Um, I was with four other folk um, of migrant background. They were all dark skinned. Um, they had U.S. passports, and then I had a Mexican passport. So we, we were online to like we were crossing by foot. And when I show my Mexican passport, um, the person opening my passport looks at it, and then she looks up at me and she goes, "Is this your passport?" And I was like, "Yeah." And then she goes, "Why does this feel like a fake passport?" And I was like. I, I don't know. This is like my passport. I was born in Mexico. Um, and then she accused me of falsifying my Mexican passport. Yeah. So under her mind, she assumed that I was um, a black person from somewhere in the Americas trying to, with, with a fake Mexican passport, trying to like cross borders. Mm-hmm. Um, so even going back to my, my country of birth, I was like almost denied entry because they couldn't imagine me. But when I got to, when we finally like, dealt with that shit and and the five of us got to the mexican side of the border um we got an uber the uber driver asked us um where we were from and i was like i'm from here um and you know like we got into the car and then we asked him why he asked us where he was from and he's like oh you know i just want to make sure because there are some like uh black people that aren't good um (laughs) and and i was like I wonder if he would have let us into the car if any of the dark skinned black people had said that they were from Mexico. Mm-hmm. Like my lightness, like I was unimagined as Mexican a few minutes ago mm-hmm. at, yeah. at the entry. But then inside the country, my lightness, my approximation to whiteness made this driver feel slightly safer. Slightly. Wow. So we get into we get into the Uber, we get we we um go to a a, a church that has a huge Haitian demographic in Mexico. And when we're there, um it's like we're like meeting with 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 Haitian folk um and in in that meeting it's when I'm like holy shit like there is no there is no um advantage in being so pride um of our nations because mm-hmm. right now like you know undocumented migration is an extension of the slave trade yeah. um cuz mm-hmm. how, how can can label the descendant of a slave an illegal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in that moment, I was like, I really need to reorient myself into a different vision of the future um, that at its heart, um, one, does not fall into like a return to Africa, but two, also doesn't fall into a return to one's like country of birth because neither of those returns can be successful if we do not address anti-Blackness and the desire um, to belong alongside, like, other people. Because right now I feel like we're we're so... um, A lot of, like, uh, targeted communities 
are so invested in like, oh, we need to be a community, we need to be a community, we need to be a community, that we disinvest with conversations of how are we fucked up to one another. I really don't think that we can um, operate through an abolitionist framework unless we begin to have accountability about within one another. Because what white supremacy needs is bodies that align with white supremacy. White supremacy doesn't need white people. Yeah, that's all I need. And when I was like... That 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 time when I was at the at the border in my country of birth and and moving through my blackness but also moving through my approximation to whiteness, I was like, the, the what I need the most right now is a different orientation, um, and that orientation is going to be really difficult because. I need like people who look like me to continuously speak about their approximation to whiteness, regardless of the situations that they're in. Like, yes, I was undocumented in the U.S. for almost two decades. Yes, I've lived through extreme poverty. Yes, yeah. so many things. And also, often, like, I'm the only person in my family with status. And I'm always like, I wonder how much my lightness has to do with that. Like, mm-hmm. all of the encounters that I face with the law. Um, and I'm so tired of talking about Latinidad without actually talking about visions for the future. Like, yes. um, I want to be able to go to my country of birth and not be accused of having a falsified passport. Like, in that moment, Latinidad means nothing. When I am... Um, I want to be able to fucking get in a taxi and not be surveilled or potentially denied because of my race or because of my or because of xenophobia. Yeah. Latin Americans need to grapple with the fact that the world is so much more than their fucking identity and the world has everyday material realities that they're not addressing. I mean <laughs> white supremacy doesn't need white people. It needs bodies that align with white supremacy. Like that just ruins diversity and inclusion entirely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What's the problem with diversity and inclusion? That is just like, all right, we're gonna get like racialized bodies that still align with all of our like bullshit values. Absolutely, it-, it just completely uproots it. Yep. Jesus Lord. We could, you know, uh, this is the last thing I'm gonna ask you to align. We can really keep you on this podcast until about eight o'clock tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I also feel like we need to hang out. We need to kick it. Oh my um, but 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 the last I feel like I would be remiss to not ask you and to take you know take advantage of the opportunity to ask you about you know your thoughts and your perspectives on um you see a very DNI uh sort of rendering or a, a mainstream perspective about the way that Haitian migrants are being treated at the U.S.-Mexican border. You see all these sort of very um, rosy stories about uh, white Latinx folks helping Haitian immigrants or um, in Mexico or, you know, but you don't necessarily see, you know, or hear much about that. You know, Haitian migrants and Haitian immigrants in this country are have some of the highest rates of deportation in the United States and one of are one of the most targeted groups. But then again, you don't hear about that. You hear white people sort of co-opting um, Latinida in a sense to make, you know, uh, immigrants from Latin America, the more virtuous victim or the, or the, the folks who they want to talk about when it comes to um, state sanctioned violence against migrants to this country. So 
I, I just I want to ask you about like your thoughts on what's happening with Haitian migrants at the U.S.-Mexico fake border um, and what your perspective is on that, your feelings on that, you know, especially as a Black person from Mexico or, you know, how, how does that make you feel or your thoughts? Thank you for this question. Um, there is one thing that I want to make clear. Um, what is happening right now at the border, particularly to Haitian migrants, is that people from Haiti are being criminalized for having a vision of the future that betrays everything we know about empires and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Their vision for the future is to survive and to make space for intimacy, for love, for joy, for complexity. Literally, like, deciding to go from an island to, like, most Haitian migrants, the way that they get to the U.S.-Mexico border is that from Haiti, um, some of them get visas to Brazil, and then from Brazil, they walk all the way up um, to the U.S.-Mexico Mexico border. Mm. Um, some of them are able to um, get on boats and get to the Caribbean part of Central America. And from Central America, they'll walk to the Haitian-Mexico border. So mm. when you're thinking about Haitian migrants, you have to understand that it is a people who have decided to um, walk through all of South America, all of Central America, and to one-third of North America in order to secure their safety. And that is what is being criminalized. The Haitian radical imagination has been deemed a threat, not only in Latin America, but also um, in Europe, um, yeah. in the Caribbean, and like in every empire. Yeah. Um, and when we're, when we're experiencing um, this violence, um, we're experiencing a denial of Black futures in the present. Um, and Haiti has offered Latin America such a rigorous framework of what it means to um, fight against white supremacy um, with only one goal in mind, and that goal being liberation and a future outside of both racialization um, and the dehumanization of the slave trade. Okay, that's one thing I want to make clear. Yeah. Another thing is um, Black migrants in the U.S. are five times more likely to be deported than any other migrant mm -hmm. because Black migrants are like, like, Black migrants are racialized in the street, marked as criminal. The police, um, you know, does whatever they do. And then the police finds out that they are undocumented or underdocumented. And that's how they get into ICE. It's not that, like, Black migrants are targeted by ICE. Black migrants are targeted by our surveillance state. Wow. And I think about the first time I was stopped and frisked, it was in New York City. And when I was stopped and frisked, I was um, in um, Harlem. I was carrying a big ass backpack and a duffel bag. And that's the moment when I said, fuck, like I'm going to get deported because they're going to find out I'm, I'm undocumented right now when they see I have no ID. Um, and that is what's happening to Black people in the US. Like, um, yeah. And Latin Americans who are talking about like, Haitian migration and whatever. Um, they're doing it through this guise of like, oh my gosh, we need to be unified. Look at what's happening mm -hmm. with, like our neighbors. And I'm just like, you are not unified with like black people in your country of birth. Um, why are you using the um, horrid experiences of this other group of people to kind of like- um, Trauma bond. Yeah, trauma bond. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been very difficult because in 
I'm gonna go back to this experience of 2019 being at the at the um at the border and in detention centers. Um, there's this Google Doc that me and my friends who were there like created just to reflect. Um, and one of the things um, that we reflected on was that when we were um, at one of the the migrant shelters, which was like hundreds of migrants, we realized that um, outside of the migrant shelter, there were a whole bunch of like kids playing. Um, none of the kids were black. And then inside there was no light indoors, but that's where all of like the black kids were like, there, there was one little room where like all the black kids were playing. And we had a really hard time understanding why is it that even in the midst of like all of these migrants are undocumented in the country trying to make it to the US and yet like the black child in this situation still doesn't even get afforded the same childhood that the other non-black children are receiving. Yeah. Um, and most of them, you know, were from Haiti, they were from Cameroon, from Angola, um, from Nigeria, from Senegal. Um, and it's just like even like even in the worst of circumstances, there are still ladders of safety. Like there is an economy. Like skin has always had an economy. It does. Mm. Um and at the border right now. We're, we're seeing so much violence and that's because one, the press thinks it's okay to show us all of this violence against dark skinned black people. Mm-hmm. Um, they would never show us this kind of violence to like, you know, light skinned folk. Um, no. We do like, it might be like a disabled person. It might be like a fat person. It might be mm-hmm. like, you know, a queer and trans or trans person. Um, and I'm just like, what is happening at the border is a larger um um it what's happening at the border is very similar to what's happening to black people across the americas yes mm-hmm. um you know the when i think about like Honduras, for example, the amount of violence Black people are experiencing there is horrible. Like, you know, um, last year, like, Garifuna leaders went missing. Um, and no, and like the country was doing nothing about it. Um, and to this point, it's like people continue to demand the country to do more, but the country's doing very little. Um, yeah. like that's indicative of what's happening at the border. When we think about Brazil, in Brazil, police brutality is on steroids. I think that the number is like um, black folk in Brazil are murdered three times at the, at the rate that they are murdered in the US. Yeah, um, yeah. it's true. Yeah. And like yeah. happening at the border is indicative of the black condition in the Americas. But everybody, for some reason, like everyone can can say, oh, like they know what black people are. But when it comes to Latin America, it's kind of like, oh, but not them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like they're different. Um. And and the the point of that is like they've worked so hard to imagine a future without them that it becomes easier. Yes. Um, like a Haitian future is a future, I would say where um, the every country in the Americas um, stops what they're doing and they look at Haitians for guidance, Haitians and Dominicans for guidance. Um, I don't want to separate Haiti and, and the Dominican Republic um, because there's so many, um, like, as like a very dark island, like it is a place we should look for guidance, regardless of the politics of the Dominican Republic. Yes. Uh, because there is a difference between the nation state and the fucking land. 
Yes. Yes. And the um, people. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Latin America needs to look at the Dominican Republic and Haiti and say, how can we propel into the future? What must we do? In the same way that um, we also need to look at other islands for other forms of resistance, because the Caribbean is, uh, there's so many fucking colonies in the Caribbean. And mm-hmm. there's also a completely different orientation to race in the Caribbean. I remember when I first saw uh, when Rihanna was getting popular and Rihanna had to like, at a press conference, she had to like, like people in Barbados were like really confused why she was being marketed as a black woman because in Barbados race works different. Yes. It's a black island, but like as a light skinned person, she was seen as something else because like people like her are in power. And Rihanna literally had to like give an interview where she kind of talks about the difference of race and how like, yes, she's still like, like she's Afro descendant, she's black um, and why she was being marketed as a black woman in the U S because in Barbados, a black woman is like a dark skinned person. Um, Mm. We really need to look at the Caribbean to re-understand like not only race, but how the Caribbean has committed themselves or and oriented themselves to a black future in the mat, in the midst of um, like colonialism, because the Caribbean is still like, experiencing not just other colonialism but an ongoing like modern colonialism where it's like a lot yeah, of people are still yeah, yeah like mm-hmm. you know, there's still debts to be paid like yeah. a lot of people still have passports to european countries mm-hmm. latin america like it's a place of so much resistance and so much possibility and sometimes our fucking language is what brings us down and also our fucking denial um to say oh, I think the way that I was raised or the values I inherited are wrong. Sometimes that's like the first step. We need to be like, oh, our values are wrong and we need to look for new values. Yes. Literally what like people need to do, particularly like white Latin Americans and like in the communities that I navigate, like light-skinned Black people need to do that. Wow. That's it. (laughs) If y'all don't listen to that and 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 just be a, you know what I mean? I, I feel like the, I've taken a step. I'm not light skinned, and I've taken a step. Have the D, calm down. You know what I mean? What I'm saying, like I've taken a step forward for my light skinned brothers and sisters and sibs, who and nibs, you know who aren't who aren't ready. Like you can't, you know, you know what I'm saying? You can't hear that and this have is it be. Have it be so laid out so clear for you and not feel galvanized to believe that a Haitian future, you know, in Latin America, a Haitian future is a is a, a, a future for Black people everywhere. A Haitian future is one that promises liberation for Black people everywhere, all across the diaspora. Yes. Amen. However you identify. And has for many centuries. And has for centuries. Yes. And to not connect that when you see you know, the insistence that that be quelled, how scared the state is of Haiti and always has been, how afraid the French are of Haiti and always have been, so much so that they literally use, um, you know, economic reparations to the French, you know, mm-hmm. to debilitate Haiti's economy mm-hmm. <laughs> purposely, like on purpose, because of what Alain is speaking to, that future and what that promises for the rest of the diaspora um, that is just extremely powerful. Wow. It's extremely powerful. 
All I have to say is, what in the hell is your Venmo and your PayPal? Yeah. Because this should not be for free. It's not. This should not be for free. We are going to be sending you PayPal, Venmo, whatever, whichever you prefer. Because, but other Cash people out. listening, I just, this is, I don't know. This is, your brain is out. It's just, and who you are and what you've offered to the planet, it's just unmatched. It's like, I don't know. I feel so whole listening to this. Yeah. Like, I feel so whole and, and, affirmed. and affirmed and lifted up and a little less um, out of it. I don't want to use ableist language, but this, the, the, the project of gaslighting folks into not believing their pain is real is, is happens. Mm -hmm. And we are, we are in that, we are in that swirl. And this has just greatly lifted me up. And I just thank you so much. Thank you so much. A fucking delight. So what is it? I want them to pay you and we are too. Shit. Uh, he was already gonna do that. Yes, so <laughs> yeah, to join. <laughs> uh, my Venmo is the same as my Instagram and Twitter at migrant scribble. Um, and then uh, my people is connected to my personal email, so maybe I won't give that out. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you don't have Venmo, okay, Venmo yeah. is good for you. Yes, yeah, and my cash app is also migrant scribble, I believe. Okay, perfect. And I will have this in the description of this podcast spelled out yes. clearly for you. And I know that no, you know, capitalist, you know, currency or value, you know, this it's just, it, it's invaluable, the yes. knowledge and the work that you've done. And it didn't come free. Mm-hmm. You yes. know, the freedom that you're able to experience and that you're able to choose yes. each and every day over and over again, you know, mm-hmm. it came at a great cost to your emotional, mental, physical health. You know, so I don't want that to be lost on people, you know, yes. that, mm. you know, everything that you continue to go through, you know, in and who and you are mm. and witness as a person, given your, you know, positionality is just super important to recognize. I would say we can end with who are some folks, some black people in Latin America that you feel like people need to follow or whose work we need to support or need to be thinking about you know, as we move forward into this very non-nihilistic, non-vent, you know, or and foray into the future, because that's how I, you mentioned saying, getting annoyed that people think you're venting or ranting, but, you know, it really, I feel like a lot of possibilities from this conversation, you know, so who are some people who you think people need to be hit to, you know? Right. Thank you so much for that. Um, oh my goodness. I mean, for, for anybody who's like Mexican or whatever, um, yes. <laughs> um, one of the persons who I continuously learn from is Andre Los Sanchez. Um, on Instagram, they are at uh, L-O-A-F-B. And they're a dark-skinned Black Mexican um, who uses TikTok um, as a way to both mimic white, I mean, not mimic, mock white supremacy um, and bring to light um, how um, Mexico is a settler empire. And, you know, I think that his work for me has been crucial to be like, okay, I am not hallucinating as like everybody else in the country is telling me yeah. I am. Like everything I'm, yes. I'm like talking about is real. Um, I also um, love um, Natalia from from Peru. Um, Natalia is a Black Peruvian filmmaker on on 
Instagram and YouTube, they go as uh, Chica Afro Peruana. They have a YouTube show called Una Chica Afro Peruana, and it just highlights Black history in Peru. And right now, um, last year, they did um, a collaboration, um, I believe, with Al Jazeera, where they went across um, different Latin American countries to interview uh, Black people about right. their conditions and their visions for the future. Um, and I highly, highly recommend uh, wow. Natalia's work. Um, yeah, so her full name is uh, Natalia Barrera Francis. Um, and also, like, she is, like, a really young artist who has opened so many doors, I think, for people in South America. And all of her collaborations, it's, like, always black and never anything else um and I'm just like this is futuristic envisioning for sure um i also love the work um of um ochi curiel uh dichos who is a black lesbian feminist um from the Dominican Republic, but has been living uh, a lot of her life in Colombia um she is somebody who has nothing to hold her back she will say what she thinks when she thinks it even if she is wrong and when she realizes she is wrong she will go back on the public sphere and be like y'all i was wrong and this is why i was wrong and i'm just like that for me i think has been one of the foundational um frameworks of what like um accountability look like and what uh, what black feminism in latin america can teach um, like other Black feminists, whether it be in the U.S. or in Europe or in the continent, like there's so much we can learn from one another. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can also send you like a list to put on the yeah, yeah, yeah. send Give us, us a, a list, list. yeah, okay. and we'll add it. Thank you, thank you so, so much. We're not gonna um, take up any more of your time. This has been such a gift. This has been really magical. Everything. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Ah, okay. Are we, are we, we stop recording? Yeah. <laughs>